Hey, welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jen Loudon, and this is the show where we get into the nitty-gritty of the creative life. What the heck does it actually take to keep creating whatever your medium, week after week, day after day? I've been in the creative trenches for 30 years, making my living, teaching, writing, speaking, <laughs> podcasting, you name it. And this week we have Sam Bennett on, and she is the author of Get It Done, a wonderful book for creative on how to be more creative, consistent, and sustainable and sane, and start right where you are. She's a creativity productivity specialist. I've tried to say that without stuttering so many times, but we're just going to leave it. And a really lovely, experienced creative herself with a career in acting and writing and producing shows and musicals and coaching all kinds of famous creatives on their process. Let's dive in and really get into some of the really specific ideas Sam has to share. You're going to love the conversation about money. Here we go. Sam, what's your personal creative life like these days? What I've been spending a lot of the time doing during the lockdown time is making training videos for LinkedIn learning, which I never in a bazillion years would have thought of to do myself. I had a friend approach me and say, hey, you know, we're making these, you know, you create the content, we'll film it, we'll put it in post, we'll sell it to everybody, and then we'll, you know, pay you royalties and you can keep the intellectual property. And I said, fine, sure, great. Here's what's hilarious is what I previously would have considered to be very boring topics. Like how to stop wasting time in meetings, how to write emails people want to read, secrets of effective prioritization. But what I love is that really it's personal development and communication skills, stealth, like disguised as business training. And it's been like a year and we have almost half a million learners. That's fantastic. So you're really having an impact. Really having an impact. And I'm getting pinged from people all over the world every day. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, I never finished these trainings and I finished yours and I really love it. But their names are straight up consonants. Like I have no idea where these people are from. <laughs> and I'm so happy to be infiltrating the world in this way, in this avenue that I never would have predicted. That's what I've been up to is like LinkedIn of all things. I love that we can find new forms if we're open. Yes. That comes up a lot on the podcast, that beginner's mind or being willing to walk through that door of, well, these are business people on LinkedIn. What do I have to do with business people? They've got jobs. (laughs) I call them straight jobs, which always makes all my friends who have straight jobs crack up. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I don't know. I always thought you were like straight. No, I've never had one of those. I've had every job under the sun, but I've never had a job in corporate America. Uh And I always feel like, I don't know what they do in there. I see the buildings. I feel like I can hear them crying. But there also is this judgment that creative people have about business people. And you and I were chatting a little bit before the show. Another way you're sort of stealth massaging your work from straight talking to highly creative people to talking about the same stuff, but under the word productivity or being more productive. So it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's It's like, here's this body of wisdom I have, but I want to find a way to connect. And that's part of our job as creatives, if we're going to make a living and if we're going to have an impact. And everybody wants the same stuff. Everybody wants to do work that matters. Everybody wants to have people who laugh at their jokes. (laughs) Everybody Definitely. That's my number one thing. Just laugh at my jokes. (laughs) When people say, what's your ideal client? I'm like, they just have to laugh at my jokes. That's all I need. And the other like sort of link in here is I think sometimes I see people not move forward on something they think they might want to do because they feel like, well, I don't want to get stuck, pigeonhole myself. I don't want to, what if I start doing this? And then everybody thinks it's great. And then I'm stuck doing that forever and ever. Oh, I hear that a lot too. I don't want to be the, that guy. Actually, the great thing about making a decision and a commitment is that then you can make new decisions and new commitments and you can find new ways to do the stuff that fascinates you. You don't you don't have to worry about being bored. And it also goes back to this new form. You didn't set out to make training videos about writing better emails. You have the kind of mind, and I think this is so important for us to develop the kind of mind that can say, oh, I can take this insight and put it in this form, in this language. 
language to connect with this person. I just think that's so important. You have backgrounds in singing and performing and, and writing plays. And is that all off the table right now because of the pandemic or because of other demands? And how does that work for you if you're not doing something that's just for you? It has been pretty much off the table since the pandemic. I will say that I have noticed that doing podcast interviews and teaching online, I mean, anybody who says that teaching isn't acting is lying. <laughs> I'm right. With, I'm like, I'm exhausted after I teach. Percent about performance energy. The performing part of me gets worked out a little bit. But yeah, no, we have a, I have a very successful musical that I wrote that we were getting all set to put on a national tour and nope, you just put it in the, in the hammock, let it, let it nap for a while. It'll come out at the right time. But it's funny, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day about that. He was like, hey, are you thinking about coming back to LA a little bit? Maybe doing a little more acting? I'm like, maybe. I've always missed it. I love acting. And the thing I love most about acting is that it uses all of me, who I am physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, comedically, psychically, like all of me gets to show up when I'm on stage and uh, especially improvising, but even but doing straight theater as well. And entrepreneurship is only actually the only other thing that I've ever found like that, where mm -hmm. I get to bring 100% of myself to plug into this work and, and my business becomes a vehicle for my values, for mm -hmm story for my work in the world. It's really satisfying. It's the only thing that would have pulled me off of, of my acting career. <laughs> that and the money. Oh yeah, the money. <laughs> the money. Was it hard to change identities from I'm an actor, I'm a performer. I mean, I went to film school. I lived in LA for 20 years. I was a part of that world. I never acted, but the other side of it, you know, creating films, writing screenplays, that kind of thing. You know, to have a different identity to me is always one of the things that can really stand in our way of our creative success is being able to form that identity more in the old identity or let it evolve. How was that for you? Because I know in reading up on you, you know, you really did a deep dive into entrepreneurship when you decided to form the organized artist is that the organized artist company right and company, it's actually yeah. and even that brand has now sort of been it's really the real sambennett.com now yeah. it's, i definitely kept myself stuck for a long time in what i call the prison of desire ah interesting i you have written some things about desire i write a lot about desire let's talk about the prison <laughs> of desire you know there's times when you want one thing so mm. much that you sort of put blinders on you know you sort of build yourself a little cage and for years i did that where i was like all that matters is acting and the work I do writing and teach. Cause of course I had a billion other part-time jobs and gigs and projects and shows and auditions. And I was running around all day long doing 90 different things, but I was like, no, no, the only thing that matters is acting. Any praise that I got from my writing or any opportunities that I got teaching or any, I was like, no, no, get that money away from me. <laughs> this is the only thing that matters. But that was also causing me a lot of pain, right? Because I had one of those acting careers that went well enough that you didn't want to give up on it, but uh, not so well enough to be able to support a person. Oh, uh, God, that middle ground. Yeah. So it was like, call back, call back, call back, call back, call back, call back, no. Call back, no. Call back, call back, call back, no. Call back, call back, call back, go to producers, no. Like, it'd be one thing if I was just failing completely, but I was so close every time. I was breaking my own heart over and over again. And finally, I remember having this, this moment with myself where it was like the walls of Jericho came down. And I was like, you know, the creative person that is me as an actor is the same person who is me as a writer, is the mm -hmm. same person who is me making dinner, is the same person who is me as a friend, is the same person who is me as a spiritual person. They're not siloed off. It's the same. And once I allowed myself that freedom and that realization of like, oh, it's not a betrayal of myself to not be acting. It's just a further exploration of the same creative energy that I put into everything. That was a big help. Clearly, I'm loving this term, prison of desire. I just wanted to say one more thing about it, though. Desire itself is built into us as humans. We need it. We do the things we really want to do, tuning into our desire, especially for people who identify as women or who are part of marginalized uh, groups in society, extra important because we so often doubt our own experience, wisdom, stories, ideas. And yet, when we need to evolve, that's when we need to turn our awareness around and say, how am I attached to a certain flavor, shape, or outcome of my desire and where is that stopping me? I think it happens to every successful creative. 
and anybody who's developed a discipline, you've gotten good at something, you've gotten comfortable, you've gotten in a, maybe a kind of a creative rut around, I do this in this form. And it may be, I'm still going to be a ceramics artist, but I actually need to completely break down the shapes that I make, the glazes that I use, the way that I fire. Maybe you're still going to be a writer. I went from screenwriting, which became a prison of desire for me in my 20s, to writing self-help books. And that doesn't seem like a big stretch perhaps to you, but to me it was like I am going to go from, you know, living in Los Angeles to living in Moscow. I mean, it was gigantic. It was unbelievably difficult for me to conceive of it. Where, if at all, are you being imprisoned by your desire? That would be a great journaling question. The other thing I did too, to get into entrepreneurship is I I really did sort of sneak up on myself because, you know, sometimes highly creative people also tend to be highly intelligent people and they can talk themselves in and out of things on a dime. Right. It does not even take me a whole shower. Oh, like it's it's the time that it takes to (laughs) pick up the soap. (laughs) I have a great idea. No, it's terrible. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, we tend to be a little resistant to authority, even our own. I started teaching Get It Done, you know, in a church basement in Van Nuys to 11 people. And I might have charged them $75 and felt really weird about it. <laughs> and for years, that was just sort of one of a lot of things I was doing. And it wasn't really until 2009 that I had a big, I ended up with just a big blank in my schedule. All of a sudden, everything I was working on either finished or went away. And I was like, oh, crap, now I got to get another gig. And then I was like, well, I wonder if I could do this organized artist company thing full time. And then I thought, I guess I should order business cards. I knew nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because business cards are so important. (laughs) Business cards are so important. Though I'm just really struck by an immediate theme in our conversation, which is it echoes my own experience as well as a creative is, is when the silo of that identity or that prison of desire breaks down, but you have to keep breaking it down. Yes. I broke down the prison of desire of have to be a top screenwriter. And then I became a successful self-help writer. And then I had to break that down, but it's that constant reinvention. And when you look at it after it's happened, you're like, well, that's so obvious. Of course. But when you're in it, it feels so impossible and frightening and complicated. Well, and it's in some ways a death and there is grief around Mm -hmm. death. There is very much grief and grief about leaving I think the transition that I'm exploring right now, grief about leaving people behind. Sure. My friend Shasta Nelson, if you haven't had Shasta on the show, you 100% should. I know Shasta as well. She's marvelous. And she's written a bunch of really great books about friendship. One of the things she says is, in general, people replace 50% of their friends every seven years. And it's so reassuring. Once I heard that statistic, I was so reassured. I was like, oh, right. This is a natural evolution of people moving through my life, me moving through other people's lives. We come together, we fall apart. Not everybody is meant to walk in lockstep forever and our careers too. And about six months ago, we got thrown out of the place we'd been living that I loved. This apartment, this town was my soulmate. I was so passionate about living in this place. They sold the building and turned it into an Airbnb and said, bye, broken. I was upset. And I realized that I had made the fact that I lived in this adorable little apartment by the beach in this cute little beach town. I had made that like part of my identity. Like I made it mean something about me. And finally, Jesus and I sit down and have a big talk. It's like, no, Sam, this is not your life. This is your lifestyle. And sometimes you have to sacrifice your lifestyle in order to continue your life. And I think about the moms I know whose kids are going to college. I think about my friends whose relationships are splitting up or coming together or marrying or remarrying or unmarrying. I think about my friends with health issues where it's like, oh my God, I used to be able to do all this stuff. And now my body can't do that anymore. It's like, right. But all that was your lifestyle. It is not your life. That's beautiful and so true. One of the things you say that I love and believe, but I want to explore a little bit is you don't have to love the work as you're creating it. Oh, you should never expect to love the work as you're creating. But here's the thing, like I completely agree. But the thing that that I wanted to explore is 
The difference between that and what you call shadow goals, you know, I have clients or students who, who come to me with shoulds, should goals, yes, I call yes. them like such a great idea. Or I put 10 years into this, this story has to be told, but you dig in and 10 minutes later, you're like, but you don't want to do it anymore. But how do you tell that from, wow, this has just been a week where everything I made or everything I put down on the page is just boring the heck out of me. So the number one thing I would say is you, you have to remember that you are a terrible terrible judge of your own work. You are a terrible judge of your own work. You have always been a terrible judge of your own work. You will continue to be a terrible judge of your own work. Like just drop the idea that it is your job to decide whether or not your work is good or not, because you can't. I will say that one question I find fruitful when I'm having that voice in my head, that's like, oh, this is terrible. This sucks. Nobody's going to care about this. Who do you think you are? And I'm sure this has come up on pretty much every interview, but let me just underline. Everyone has that voice. I work with Academy Award winners, Emmy Award winners, famous people, rich people, old people, young people, everyone has this voice. So when that voice starts going, oh, this is terrible. Nobody's going to want this. I will sometimes pause and think to myself, okay, that may be, it may be terrible. Do I know how to make it better right now? Do I know how to make it better right now? And sometimes it's like, oh yes, I could make this funnier. Or I could make this shorter. Or I could, a solution will appear. Other times I'm like, well, it may still be terrible, but I don't know how to make it better right mm-hmm. now. So I'm just going to keep going. And this is why God made editors and beta readers and, you know, agents and other people who support us in our work. And time and time and naps and, and snacks and snacks, <laughs> trusted advisors. Napping is one of the best productivity strategies there is. I am a champion s- napper. <laughs> such a fan. I'm such a fan. <laughs> I always think it's one of the benefits of, again, a life in the theater and touring is I can sleep almost anywhere, almost anytime for almost any amount of time. But let's just go back for a second. So then how do I know when I'm asking, do I know anything to do mm-hmm. to make it better right now? And I, but how do I know the difference between that and should I stay with this project? Is this a real desire of mine? It's really hard to tell. It's hard to tell on both ends because it's hard to tell the difference between, is this really the right thing for me, the right opportunity, the right project? Or am I just having a big flash of pattern recognition? Is this really the perfect person for me to date? Or is this person just emotionally withholding in the way that drives me wild with desire? (laughs) Right. It can be very difficult to tell the difference between those two things. In the same way that it can be very difficult to tell the difference between, is this pain in my belly the natural trepidation that a person would feel when they're trying something new? Or is this really a gut feeling of, no, this is not the right thing for me? And honestly, I don't know that we can tell the difference between those things from the inside. So this is why I'm such a big fan of the 15 minute thing Mm -hmm. of baby steps of following the sparkly breadcrumbs, you know, take a couple of little steps, really bring awareness to those steps. Like as you're doing it, notice how you're feeling, Mm -hmm. notice what's happening because we've all certainly had the experience of like, Ooh, I took a couple little baby steps and wow, the universe came rushing at me with all this wonderful opportunity and insight. And wow, this is such so great. You know, you get carried along by this tidal wave of support. It's really exciting when that happens. Other times we take a couple little steps forward and it's a lot of knees and elbows. It's way more expensive than you thought it was going to be. It's not the, you know, and then you just go, okay, that's not the right time. Maybe later, but not today. You know, same thing with the fear. It's like, well, I don't know if I'm just intimidating myself or actually this is wrong, but let's take a couple little baby steps make a couple of calls, enroll in a class, Mm -hmm. sit down for 15 minutes and just play around with it for a couple of days. Sam's 15 minutes, just do 15 minutes is what I call teeny tiny containers. And my teeny tiny containers can be any amount of time that is less than you would usually spend and that you can fulfill no matter what. And if it's not time, it can also be words or five pieces glazed or whatever your medium is. It's something that's measurable that you know you can do no matter what that day. And it's less than you usually would. And you stop, you don't keep going. You may go right back to it after a couple of minutes, but you stop and acknowledge you did what you said you would do. Linger there. Notice how it feels instead of the feeling that we usually do or the thing that we usually do as creators, which is notice what we didn't do or judge the work. So teeny tiny containers are very, very powerful. They're life-changing for the people I work with. And the other thing I want to add is during your teeny tiny container or your 15 minutes or whatever it is you declare, you don't do anything else. No multitasking. Multitasking ruins your ability to put together your thoughts, to connect the dots, and creativity is combinatorial. And when we interrupt ourselves constantly, we can't make those combinations. They fly out of our head. We don't 
work on them, we don't give them time, and we start to think we have nothing to say or nothing to create or we're not original. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. We're simply not giving ourselves creative time uninterrupted in small concentrated doses to follow our thoughts and honor them or our ideas or our images or again, whatever your medium. And see where it leads you and really humble yourself to the project. Let the project lead you. Ask the project, who do you need me to be? What are you here to teach me? We were talking today um, in my uh, writer's mastermind, everybody in there is working on nonfiction projects in that particular program. And we were talking about Lucia Cappuccini, who's a, she's now passed away, but art therapist. And she invented the non-dominant hand, uh, <gasps> your non-dominant hand. You know? I love that exercise. When we were talking about where, what are some of the places you would use it? And I said, you know, when you feel like you need to talk to your project, but you can't really hear what your project's trying to say. I said, you know, I do think our projects have wisdom. They have a life. And I love what you said, you know, what do you have to teach me? Because for me, I think the hidden in clear and plain sight benefit of being a creative, being a writer, being a a whatever you create, y'all, is that we're always growing and learning. And if we're not tending to that and honoring that as part of what we're doing, if we think it's only the outcome, it's only the paycheck, it's only the praise, man, that's where I've gotten lost so many times. We know that there's going to be, you know, that thrill at the beginning. Oh, a new idea. It's all sparkly and sexy and new. It's much better than that old idea I've been thinking about. Let's look at the new one, right? (laughs) We we get that big burst of energy at the beginning. And then we know there's the slog. There's the the, the grown zone. I like that, the (laughs) grown zone. It just feels like nothing is moving and everything is just walking through mud. And then there's that time at the end where it looks like it might really be real. And then you totally freak yourself out. You know, and once we start to identify these stages of the creative process, you can start to anticipate them a little bit and be like, oh, right. Certainly, again, to bring it back to the theater, you know, there's a point um, usually right before tech week where you're like, this is terrible. This show is never funny. Nothing is ever going to work. That guy's never going to learn his lines. This gag is never going to work. This prop is never going to show up. Like it's a disaster. It's a disaster. And that's how you know that you're two weeks from opening. (laughs) One of the sticking places that a lot of my clients and students, and I'm sure listeners talk about is they really, really don't know how to start. One of the things I love to offer people is try skipping the first step. Whatever you think the first step is, just skip it. Oh, I want to write a screenplay. Oh, I should probably get a book on screenplay. Oh, I should probably take a class. I should probably, nah, skip it. Get an index card and fill it up with some words. And then do that again tomorrow. See what happens. Just hopscotch over whatever you think. Do love 15 minutes a day, every single day, before you check your email, before you check your, e- before you check your email, 15 minutes a day on the things that matter to you, whatever that is. What I love about it is, first of all, we're all busy people. Everybody's you know, like, oh, I'm going to spend an hour a day at the gym. Really? Where, where, where's that hour coming from? But 15 minutes we can do, especially first thing, you know, before the day sort of gets away from you. It hopscotches right over your perfectionism, right over your desire to be great. Like how great is it going to be? It's 15 minutes. It's amazing how much you can get done in 15 minutes. It's amazing how much progress you can make in 15 minutes every day for a week, a month, a year, six years, 60 years. It also lets the angels know you're serious. So then all the sort of magical things can start happening. It makes you smug (laughs) in the most delightful way. (laughs) When you've spent 15 minutes on the thing that matters to you and possibly to you alone, you go through the rest of the day with a little light in your eye. You're less reactive. You're a better listener. You have a better sense of humor. Like that is the ultimate act of generosity is you showing up creatively fulfilled swag in your step. It's like, yeah, yeah, I did that. I think that's the other thing about putting our creations first. It's hard. Sometimes the work we're doing is easy and it flows and the 15 minutes is fun. And sometimes it's really hard to stay there for your 15 minutes. Just like it's really hard to do your workout and, and doing those things that are challenging has made me so much more courageous overall. Absolutely. For years, I did CrossFit, which I really loved. I'm pretty terrible at. (laughs) Jumping up on those damn boxes. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, no, I don't jump. Girls with big boobs don't jump. I I don't know. I would step. (laughs) I have long legs. I can step. And it was incredibly hard. And I would be super red and hot and sweaty and half crying. And, but I loved doing something I was so bad at. 
I loved it that I showed up for myself two, three times a week. And as you know, as the wise woman says, I can do hard things. Mm-hmm. I can get over psyching myself out. I can push myself. There was one time I was working out, we were doing this like reverse bear crawl or something. It was awful. I'm sweating. I'm crying. I'm, I really want to quit. I really want to quit. And I had two voices in my head. One said, so quit. Like, go get in the car and go home. No, no one cares. And the other voice in my head said, Sam, you can pause. You can rest. You can do this poorly. You can do a really shitty job, but you can't quit. So I was like, okay, I'll just keep doing this really badly. And then finally the trainer spotted me struggling and she comes over to me and she goes, so Sam, does it hurt or is it just hard? And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, it's just hard. And she goes, oh, good. And she walked away. And in some ways, that may be the answer to the question of like, is this really the right thing for me or not? Like, does it hurt or is it just hard? Because if it hurts, cross it off the list. Like, no, 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 no. But if it's just hard, that's an engraved invitation from God. Truly, our brains do not want to do any of this. Our brains don't want to CrossFit. Our brains don't want to run. Our brains don't want to write. Our brains are like, what is in this for me? Our brains are like, I've got one job is to keep you alive. And you're using up a bunch of resources right now for something I see no benefit in. So your brain is always going to tell you to quit. And it sounds so convincing. Oh, it sounds so real. And it's trying, yes, it's trying to get you to conserve calories. And when people tell me they're afraid, I'm like, well, of course. Of course you're afraid. It's terrifying. There's a reason most people don't do this. I mean, it's really, it's absolutely terrifying. We can't let fear drive the car, right? We can't let fear make our decisions for us. As I've become very fond of saying, stage fright is not a sign that you shouldn't go on stage. It is a sign that you are about to go on stage. Mm. I've always thought one of the best titles ever is Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. God, I wish I'd written that title. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty good book too, but I love it when titles themselves are just a lesson in the world. Like if all you ever do is just walk past that at a garage sale, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Huh, that's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, uh, we were talking about this again in the mastermind this morning. One of the women, I had them do this prompt about sort of what are you think you should write this week. And then what do you really want to write this week? But something more clever than that. Mm-hmm. And a couple of women were like, oh, I realized like, I thought I had to go out and learn some more before I could. And they were like, WTF, I'm going to own what I know about this. I'm going to write about that this week. I see that a lot with my clients. I also see a lot of what I call um, hiding in the creative cave. Mm. And making your thing, whatever it is, and not testing it, not sharing it, not using any of the means that we have now digitally in different groups and things to say, well, how is this landing? What do you think helps with both of these things? One is, you know, what are you writing when you really want to write? This is also good for the, we're in that creative transition of like, what do you really do? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about giving up my career as a lawyer to become a yoga instructor. God, mm-hmm. that seems crazy. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. what am I thinking? It's like, okay, well, what do you do? Well, really, I, you know, I'm a lawyer. I help people with whatever. Right. What do you really do? Oh, I help people get aligned with their values and structure their lives so that they're easier. And as a yoga teacher, I could help people get aligned with their values and structure their lives and their bodies so that they're like, oh, I'm actually doing the same thing no matter what. Right. So what do you do? What do you really do? That's also a good way to juice up a career that maybe you have lost interest in. Be like, oh, what am I really doing? And how can I do more of that? Because that's mm-hmm. really what's soul side satisfying for me. Also the, oh, I need to learn more about this. Like that's the skip the first step. That's, that's where I'm like, no, no, no. We all have issues claiming our expertise around things. You know, this word expert, it's like, oh God, I'm not an expert. I mean, Mm -hmm. golly. But the word expert is the same root word as experience and experiment. So I was like, well, you know, I may or may not be an expert, but I definitely have some experience. Mm -hmm. I definitely um, love to experiment in this world. The phrase that always calms me down is, I know what I know. I know what I know. Do I know everything? It doesn't mean. And and I might have a recognition that maybe other people don't know what I know. So the thing that seems really boring and stupid and obvious to me, it might be a massive newsflash to them. And this final thing of like keeping your stuff in the basement, in the closet, in the drawer, not sharing it with the world. This is where you knew this would be a great right-hand, left-hand exercise. Because the work that we do just for ourselves, for our own joy, are hobbies. And hobbies are beautiful, soul-expanding, fun, wonderful things. And if your thing is a hobby, then keep it a hobby. Don't put the pressure of public perception on it. Back when all my friends were having babies, I used to make cashmere sock monkeys for all the baby showers. 
And every time people were like, oh my gosh, these are so great. You should sell them. Oh, you should make them. You should have a business. And I was like, oh no, I enjoy making these for the special babies in my life. That's the end of the story. I don't want to have to do it. I don't have any interest in doing it any more than I'm doing it. It's just something I do for me and the people I love. Same thing with cooking. Like I'm a fine cook, but I don't ever want to do that publicly. <laughs> like that does no interest for me. Be honest with yourself. If your thing is a hobby that's really just for you, then honor that. That's great. Make time for it. Make a, you know, have it be in the budget. Like don't feel shy about it. Do it because it's an important part of you. On the other hand, if you have that niggling feeling inside of you that what you do could serve the world, that other people could benefit from the work you do, especially the work that comes out of your pain, you know, the poem or painting or article or whatever that you write about your loneliness, your heartbreak, your insecurity, that helps me with my loneliness and my heartbreak and my insecurity. To take that, that thing that you know is part of your sort of God-given mission on earth, to share this and relegate it to a hobby, to pretend like, oh, no, no, it's just my little songs. Oh, no, it's just my little thing. Like, that is also incorrect. So we want to stay in right relationship to the work. And I see people who know they're producing this for someone else. In this case, I work primarily with writers. So, you know, producing a book or a course, or but they don't want to share it until it's really done and good. And they get so freaked out when I'm like, we need to share it to see if it's proof of concept. We need to share it to develop this in concert with your people. And it's as if I said, you now need to streak naked through Times Square. Well, because it feels like streaking naked through Times Square. You know, Did the, you the- share Get It Done, the, your first book while you were developing it? Well, like I said, it came out of the workshop. At that point, I've been doing it for 10 years. So Mm -hmm. I had all the teaching stories. I had all the worksheets. I had, you know, which didn't make it any less horrifying to put it out there. But I really noticed it with my second book. Oh, and this may be a helpful thought. So with my second book, it got sold and it got written really fast. (laughs) They wanted it in eight weeks. And I was like, "Um, you can have it in 12, but okay. So I wrote it really fast. I just didn't have my pattern down as well. You know, I hadn't been doing that work for 10 years. I hadn't been teaching that class for 10 years. I was a lot more insecure about it as it came time for the book launch, which is just a nightmare. (laughs) Like, it's so much work. And no matter how much you're doing, you know, there's 900,000 other things you really ought to be doing. And it's exhausting. And especially for a person who's shy and who's an introvert like me, it takes a lot of doing. So I was working with a shadow coach friend of mine and we were getting into this thing with this book. And I was nervous about doing interviews around it because I felt like, oh, I don't have my my pad, my wrap. We do a little investigation and finally this phrase pops up and I said, it's not my book. And he said, what? And I said, it's not my book. He says, what does that mean? I'm like, I don't know, but I feel like I just took off a 10,000 pound suit of armor. Like, it's not my book. And what I realized is it's like, I assume this is what people must feel about their children. Like if your child goes out into the world and does something amazing, you're proud of them. You had something to do with the process, but it's not yours. It's theirs. They're doing the amazing thing. Other people are benefiting from that. They're living their own life. And the book is the same thing. The book gets to go out into the world and have its relationship with the world and readers that doesn't have anything to do with me. Oh, it was such a relief. And that is such a first to second book thing. I have this. Oh, sophomore slump, second Uh album. Uh Uh-oh. But in every interview I did, I was like, before, I I mean, I say a prayer before everything I do, before I come on Zoom, I say a little prayer. And for those, my prayer was, this is not my interview. It's my job just to show up and go wherever this conversation is going, stay as open and clear as I can and have as much fun as I can. And and again, it's, it has to do with staying in right relationship to the work. I've been thinking about this a lot about, you know, I can be proud of the work that I've done and I can be proud of myself for doing it without being prideful. Because prideful it. tends to give us a sense of, look at me, I'm special, I did good can be such a loop back into the fixed mindset. So this is all I can do. And that's great that I can do that, but don't ask me to do anything else. So tell me more about right relationship with work. This case, it's funny. It came up in, in a group I was leading the other day and I was like, oh, this is hot. Like, so I'm not entirely sure what I mean, mm-hmm. but I will say this is I've got a niggling thought from something before about testing your work and, and getting it out there and having whatever it is, beta readers or first clients or first customers you really do kind of need to make a hundred sales before you have any idea really what it is you're doing. You have to have a hundred clients, at least 10. (laughs) 
you can feel like, okay, I can start to predict who's a good ideal client for this. Paying people, by the way. And I'm not a fan of this, like, oh, I'm just starting out, so I'll do it for free. No, no. Or I'm just starting, it's, I'm just starting out, so I'll do it for cheaper. No, the price of the work is the price of the work. You are worth it, and so are they. And it's not about what you, this whole thing about like, oh, charge what you're worth. Charge what you're worth. No, your worth is intrinsic. You're not charging what you're worth. If we had 10 babies in front of us, we would not say this baby is worth more than that baby. All the babies are worth the same. They all get a cashmere sock monkey. It's fine. What you're charging for is the value of the work to them. That's what you're charging for. What is the value of the transformation to them? Right relationship. I think some of it has to do with a phrase I learned from a teacher of mine, when it comes to my clients and students and even my readers, I'm responsible to them. I'm not responsible for them. So it's my job to, like I said, show up as well as I can in any given moment to provide a container, to offer as many resources and opportunities as I possibly can. But then it's their work. And this is partly why we charge people because sales is a sacred exchange. So I show up with all this stuff, container, money, energy stuff, and you show up with yourself and money. And that's how it's a sacred exchange. And if we think about other things that are a sacred exchange, like a handshake or a a hug, staying in this this sensation of like, look, I've got a bus and I'm driving the bus. You want to get on the bus? Great. Get on the bus. You don't want to get on the bus? Don't get on the bus. And what happens in your experience of being on the bus is yours. That's up to you. That's not up to me. It also feels like that phrase, right, relationship is about first having a relationship with the work, uh, making it all about you. But like there's an exchange going on between you and the project, the idea, the client, whatever your form of creative expression is. There's an intention. I mean, my intention in having this podcast is always I always imagine that the the listeners are in this, my little office with me. And it's like, how can I help you today to move your creative practice and courage forward so you can create out loud? Like, what can I not pull out of my guest, but suss out or be in conversation with so that they're like, oh, that was worth my time. Now I know this thing that I can try or do, or this thought is in my in my head so that I can carry that with me. So right relationship with work. There's a lot to explore there. I think it's very rich. You know, whoever it is at the brain science laboratory of, <laughs> of mystical people, you know, there, there's some thought that we have, I forget what it is, you know, 90,000 thoughts a day or something in as much as any, what anybody knows what a thought is, but it appears like most of them are the same ones we had yesterday. And a lot of them are self-critical, which again is just survival. We're tribal animals. We're designed to live in a group. Of course, we're concerned about what everybody else thinks. We we know that if we're not approved of, we will get put on an ice flow and we will die. <laughs> I'm a people pleaser. I'm like, yeah, in your DNA, you're a people pleaser. You're, that's not bad. So this thing of like, can I introduce a new thought to someone today? The sound I always love is this one. Oh, I love that because that's the sound of a new thought, right? That's, oh, I could try that. Oh, that could be fun. Just going to switch directions for a little bit about changing your relationship with money. I love when you wrote art is infinitely more vital than money. And you also wrote, we don't say starving minister or starving bus boy or starving gas station employee. And you said, even though in most instances, a whole lot more likely for artists to be able to make money than the bus boy. Out of the money work that you have done in the workshop and in the book and, and in Start Right Where You Are, your second book, what do you see really can change that story about I'm not allowed to make money from my creative work. I'm not allowed to thrive. Boy, I'm so glad you brought this up. And at the risk of sounding prideful, I have to say, I have done a ton of work and really transformed. So I just want to say to all of you, if you are struggling with money mindsets, scarcity, it is possible. It is absolutely possible to make the jump. Sam is living proof. I am living proof because I started babysitting when I was nine. I got my first job job when I was 12. Like I always worked and I always prided myself on working hard and I refused to take any kind of full-time gig because I was so busy acting. I mean, I I look back at my social security statements sometimes and I'm like, how did I live? But I can do things with beans and rice that like you wouldn't even believe. I shopped at thrift stores. I never went anywhere. I never bought anything. I used to play how much did this outfit cost and it was always less than like... (laughs) you know, $100, including bra and shoes. Like I was very proud of my ability to scrimp and save and make do and get by on nothing and hand make gifts and do all that. Then I started to realize how much hurt this was hurting me much pain I was in around it. When everything comes down to money, you know, when everything comes down to like, well, I can't afford it. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. Like that is depressing. And I realized that I was carrying around this problem of being broke 
like it was a baby. Oh, oh, I'm terribly, terribly broke. Look how broke I am. Look how virtuous I am about being broke. I am very attentive to my brokenness. <laughs> Me and broke are very close. It's an identity. Oh, this identity, exactly. And when I realized like, oh shoot, I have a little moral high ground issue going on here with myself that I think it's kind of special of me. Um, because you're so devoted to your art. Because I'm so devoted to my art. So engaged in this, yes, this whole thing of worthiness. And then I did a lot of work. I did all, I read all the books. I did all the exercises. I got coached. And finally, I realized a couple of things. There is no shortage of money anywhere. There is an infinite amount of money in the world. I mean, I guess if we started to count, we would eventually get to the final dollar, but we're not going to do it. So for our purposes, there is an infinite amount of money and you can prove it to yourself. Go on eBay and look at what people are spending on things. <laughs> people spend all kinds of money on the craziest things. So it may not be in your wallet or my wallet right now, but it's there. And it's not that hard to get. People way dumber than us have seemed to gotten, you know, got a hold of it. I would do little tricks with myself. Like I started to put like dollars and fives and tens every place I could do it, like in the car, under my computer, in my pocket, in the drawer. So it just felt like in the coffee mug. So like every time I turned around, I felt like, oh, look, here's some more money. Oh, look, here's some more money. I had proved to myself earlier that I had always contributed to the church that I went to not quite tithing, but I always had a, a percentage that I would give to the church. And I always noticed could, no matter how broke I was, I could always make that commitment. And I thought, well, if I can make that commitment to the church, I could probably make that commitment to myself and to my savings account and to my life. So the other big tip I have is, is just raise the basement because we all have this point at which we go like, oh shoot, I got to bring in some money. And then you do mine. Oh, I forget what it was, but maybe let's say it was a hundred dollars. Like if I got to less than a hundred dollars in my bank account, I was like, oh no, oh, do, oh dude, I gotta, I gotta hustle. And then I would hustle and bring in some money. It's like, well, why am I waiting till it's a hundred dollars? I wanted to add my own moment to money mindset that Sam has been talking about. And that is the moment I decided to stop waiting to be chosen. And I was probably 12, 15 years into my career, maybe even more than that. And I'd had a lot of success. I'd been chosen by a lot of, you know, big publishers and Oprah and stuff like that. But I was really sick of feeling like I was at the mercy of being chosen. It's not wrong to want to be chosen to get those gigs, publishers, patrons, etc. at all. But when our whole creative freedom and income revolves around having to be chosen, it can be really debilitating. I think it's a difference between Sam talking about her acting career and then founding her business and, and growing it. I want to say I was a very entrepreneurial writer from the beginning. It's one of the reasons why my first book, The Woman's Comfort Book, became a bestseller because I like I read and I studied and this stuff was hard to come by in the early 90s. And I toured by myself. I created my own church basement workshops. So I was always out there. I was really early adopter to the internet and to building my own email list, all of that. But it was the mindset shift between maybe someone will see me, maybe someone will elevate my work, maybe some big miracle will happen. And that is a really powerless place to live. When I made the decision to choose me and really start orienting myself towards creating as many opportunities for myself, really having more of a business mindset. I'm not going to say that I always made more money because that's not true, but I consistently made more money and I consistently had a much greater sense of, of creative agency. That to me is the heart of creating a life with our work that we love is I have the agency to create more of what I want. I still have to think about the marketplace. I have to think about what do you want? What's going to meet your needs? How do I language it? How do I package it? How do I present it? But it's still connected to what I'm interested in creating and offering versus hoping that I create something and that somebody will pick it. I hope that makes sense. That was a big pivot uh, or a big moment of realization for me. So then we make it a thousand dollars. And now anytime it gets below a thousand, I'm like, oh, let's hustle. Let's get it going. And then 5,000 and then 10,000 and then 20,000 and then 30,000, you know, and this is how we start to accumulate a cushion. I could never relate to this idea of like a cushion or a nest egg. I was like, eh, for what? But then I heard a story about an entrepreneur who had a shoe store. It was right during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And all of a sudden nobody was buying shoes. He, and his income just started to plummet. And he knew he had to make a decision 
about whether or not to close the store. He's like, I can stay open for another year and run through all of my savings or, and he said, but I had my lifeboat packed. I had this amount in the bank. I closed the store right away, which was heartbreaking and terrible, but I had all this savings so I could pivot, make another decision, start a new project and not have it destroy me, mm-hmm. not to mention the lives of my employees, colleagues mm-hmm. and friends. And I was like, have your lifeboat packed. Oh, now this appeals to the Girl Scout in me. Like I am <laughs> nesting. I'm like, whatever. Lifeboat packed, that appeals to me. So that that little mindset shift really, really helped me start salting things away. And I noticed that people find money for the things that are important to them. Yeah, I loved how you touched upon desire in get it done. To me, desire is so important as a motivator. And I love how you said procrastination is persistent desire. Yes. The fact that there's something that keeps showing up and tapping on the shoulder going, hey, and to flip it around instead of what we do around procrastination, which is I can't do it. There's something wrong with me. I'm lazy. You know, none of that is true. None of that is true. The other thing I often say is that procrastination just means your project's too big. This is the thing with highly creative people. Like you get an idea and then it's like all of a sudden- The whole thing is right there in front of you. Big three blown 3D theme parks and t-shirts and (laughs) sequels and like you see the whole thing. Theme parks. Yes, I've had an idea for a theme park once or five times. (laughs) And you immediately psych yourself out. Let's, 15 minutes, like chunk it out. Let's take a little bit and see, see where you're going. To go to the other book, start right where you are. You have an exercise, the middle way. Could you describe that? Because that really appeals to my meditation background. Sometimes we get caught between extremes in our mind. Never. (laughs) I want to be generous, but I'm tired of giving away the store. So if on the one hand we have generous and on the other hand, we have giving away the store. Well, what's in the middle of that? This was one of the first times I ever did this is I did it for myself because that was exactly the thing I was facing because people were like, oh, can I pick your brain? Oh, can I have 10 minutes of your time? I was like, well, I want to be generous. Pick my brain. That sounds (laughs) disgusting. Expensive. This was exactly the question I was like, I want to be generous, but I don't want to give away the store. And I thought, okay, well, what's the middle ground? And I got quiet and I even saw the image in my head of office hours. I was like, right, office hours. If you make an appointment with me during office hours, then I'm available. If you try to reach me after office hours, I am not available because the office is closed. So um, the middle way is kind of holding both extremes and finding what would be a little bit of both. Right, exactly. So it's like, I'm uncomfortable feeling like an expert, but I know I'm not a beginner. Okay, well then what's the middle, what's the middle way? Well, the middle way is I know what I know, you know, or the middle way is let's experiment together. It's really what feels right for you and quit ping-ponging back and forth between mm-hmm. this. Well, I don't want to be this. Well, I don't want to be that. Well, I don't want to be this. Well, I don't want to be that. Fine. Mm-hmm. Don't be either. What's the middle Where, or better yet? What's both, both. And I'm an expert and I'm a beginner, both. And can you also tell us briefly the hot pink ghost exercise from get it done? I have thoughts that haunt me will stop me dead in my tracks. What I notice is that they're sort of, they're habituated. They tend to be kind of a stress response. They're like my worry beads almost. Like when I don't know what to think, I'll just start thinking one of these things. One of my, one of my all-time favorites is I work and I work and I work and I don't get anywhere. And I finally started paying enough attention to my thoughts to realize like, I think this kind of a lot, even though I have evidence that it's not true, that doesn't actually seem to matter. So I started to realize like, oh, let's just paint that thought hot pink and put some sparklers and flags and streamers on it. And a big sign that says express elevator to hell. Like if you really <laughs> want to feel shitty about yourself, Sam, think this thought. Another one was when I started, to, whenever I started to think about my weight, because I'm very tall, I'm almost six feet tall and I've never been a small person, even when I was a thinner person. And finally I was like, I am so bored with this thought. Surely there must be something more interesting for me to think about. I just painted that thought hot pink, put some sparklers on this. And every time I think that I'm like, oh, right. There's the thought that's trying to distract me from something more interesting, from something more juicy. A little bit of CBT, really. Absolutely. Just bringing that awareness for those of you who know what those express elevator to hell thoughts are. Paint them hot pink so that when they come through, you're like, I know you. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of bringing some awareness and humor to it. Sam, I like to ask my guests the same question at the end. What do you want to learn next? I would like to learn how to have a global impact and not feel too shy about that. Shy about the desire? Shy about the desire and shy about more shy about the doing. I, mm. Like I said, I, I am, nobody believes it because of the way my personality is, but I am by nature a very shy person and a very introverted person and easily embarrassed. 
like when it took a lot for me to change the website to the real and have my big picture right up there on the front like that. That took a lot of doing. I had a friend ask me recently, she's like, Sam, why does everything work out for you? And I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> She said, no, I mean, you write your first book. It gets endorsed by Seth Godin. You write a musical. It's a big hit. You do this. Like, how come everything works out for you? We're friends. So I'm not going to get mad at you for saying this. It's because I can tell you right now, not everything works out for me. But I say yes to a lot of things. And some of them work out. That's what I want to keep learning and modeling for other people is like, well, just say yes to a lot of things. Say yes to 15 minutes. Say yes to yourself. Say yes to that niggling little desire. Say yes to that thing you've been procrastinating on. Say yes to your own awesomeness. You all are fabulous. You're doing great. People love you. You're so good at what you do. You're so fun. Like you're doing great. So say yes to global impact. So we're going to say yes to global impact. I mean, it's already, like I said, it's already sort of starting to happen in little ways with this LinkedIn things. Maybe there's a path there that I didn't know was there. Fantastic. Sam, thank you so much for your bubbly brilliance. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a joy. Wow. I love how Sam has these little one-liners or phrases that remind you of important concepts like the prison of desire. That's fantastic. And I really love this idea of don't start at the beginning, like go to the next step. I tell my writers that all the time because especially writers, I think we tend to do a whole bunch of explaining and we have to tell everybody all the stuff. We have to lay it out. We bore the heck out of ourselves doing that. What's the takeaway for you? Every week I ask you, write it down, text a friend, share it with somebody to make it real. I hope you've got a bunch this week with Sam Bennett. And you'll check out her books, get it done, and start where you are. You can always find links to all the good stuff that we talk about in the show notes over at jenniferloudon.com and just click on podcast right at the top of the page. Next week we have a super special guest. This is the first time that I've had one of my own clients on the show. Her name is Sarah Flick. She's a psychiatrist, a spiritual director, and the author of Desire, Mystery, and Belonging. I've had the pleasure of working with Sarah over two decades, and I want to talk to her about the slow birth of this book in the midst of her very busy psychiatry practice and raising a child and being the wife of an Episcopalian priest and a spiritual director herself, how the book took shape and changed form how she dug in to really believe that her voice and her stories mattered and that she had to share them more fully, what it was like to get coached by me, and lots of other stuff. I'm having Sarah on because the book that she created is extraordinary. It's beautiful and wise and deep, but I also want to talk about how the creative life fits in a busy woman's life, how we develop the the, the skill, the courage to make time for what's important to us and then how that thing takes on a life of its own. There's going to be so much good stuff in this episode. I can't wait to share it with you, Sarah Flick, next week. And in the meantime, will you do me a really big favor and share this episode or another one that you loved or the podcast in general on social media? It helps us find new listeners. Or if you're not a social media person, email a couple of friends with a link to the episode. It's really easy. Just go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Or again, go to my uh, website, jenniferloudon.com, click on podcast, and you can share that page real easy. Just copy and paste that link into an email. That would be so amazing. Thank you. We really love to grow. And what's even more important in the meantime, between now and next week, is you're going to create out loud. See you next week.